You're getting ready to go out. You want to get in the mood. There's a playlist for that. You move to the beat. You trip over the dog. You're not dancing anymore. You open the Medibank app and find a physio. We live in an on-demand world. And now your health insurance comes on demand too. Download the new Medibank app today. On 1116 SEN, this is the Flag Flyers for the American-Australian Association devoted to strengthening relations between the United States and Australia. Hello everyone and welcome to the Flag Flyers, the place where we profile and chat about all the Aussies flying the flag for Australia in the US of A. I'm Christopher Tyler, alongside me is Lockie Miller. Hello mate. Hello Christopher. What's going on? I'm just uh, contemplating what we're going to do next week now that we've used up two amazing interviews in one show. It is a jam-packed show today. Mate, you use that term far too much. I do, I normally do, but compared to this week, every other show has been relatively empty. (laughs) The fact that we've been on air for nine months now and now you're finally fessing up. Sorry, listeners. No, 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 no. It's usually jam-packed compared to this show. Ah, okay. Nice save. They seem empty. Yeah, yeah. That's what I said initially. yeah. Not only are we going to start off with random the bases, as we usually do, we're going to be starting off chatting uh, the latest in uh, Major League Baseball with Xavier Player and the Miners as well. Uh, Xavier Player from Hewitt Sports Network. We're also going to be chatting to Olgan Ulick from pickandroll.com.au, who's back in Australia, spent the last five months in the state studying. He's now back in Australia. He's going to be telling us the latest from the world of high school basketball, both in Australia and in the States as well. He's also got some news on Thon Maker, which he'll let us know about very shortly. We're also going to be chatting to Ben Yem Kadane from BelieveTheHypeNBA.com, obviously on the latest with the uh, the NBA playoffs. Obviously, we've got Della Vadova in that series, Cavs versus uh, Hawks. They're 3-0 up in that series. And uh, in the Golden State series, they're up 3 nothing against uh, the Houston Rockets. So we've got Bogey and Daly both in the playoffs. We've got Ben Yam coming on to chat about it, which would be terrific news because there's a lot going on in those, those series, Lucky. And then, after all that... After all that, wait, that's, that, that's only a third. That's huh? only a third of the show because yeah. after that, we're going to be chatting to Craig Shipley, who was the first Australian in 85 years to play Major League Baseball. Joe Quinn being the first one in the early 1900s, then 80-something years later... It was Craig Shipley, but not only did he play Major League Baseball, Lucky, he's now in a position of power as the assistant to the general manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Australian with the most amount of power in baseball at the moment. Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. And it's something uh, uh, I didn't fully uh, realize um, his hierarchical status uh, until uh, doing a bit of uh, research prep for him. So uh, I feel like uh, we've snagged the biggest uh, interview of our um, you can't get much bigger than Craig Shipley. Well, I mean, you too. cannot. Yeah. So, um, well, in in you know Australian baseball realm, yeah. no, not at all. So, you know, I'm pretty stoked to have that. And then after all that, we've also got uh, another big big wig, another power uh, broker in in Australian sport, and that's Paul Sargent, the CEO of Eddie Head Stadium. Obviously, in the past week, there has been that tremendous news, tremendous, tremendous news in the announcement that. More than likely, Lockie, there's going to be a college bowl game at the end of next year at Etihad Stadium, and hopefully for four years after that. And we need to make sure that this begins the 18th month uh, cycle of us petitioning Paul and Etihad that we get to call the game. <laughs> at the very least, we get to be boundary reporters. I don't think that's the something. Term. Yeah, I mean the I- official show. Yeah, uh, of whatever the ball would be called. We'll ask Paul what. I mean, uh, I can be the, the token good-looking female that ESPN puts up. Not that that's true, because they know actually they actually know an awful lot about. It's ridiculous the game. how much they know. Yeah, they actually Samantha Ponder. Her knowledge is beyond anything. Samantha Ponder's knowledge of how of American football is better than Christian Ponder. 
<laughs> and that's why he's at Oakland. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> damn so, you, Christian Ponder, and you, <laughs> you shitty work at Minnesota. God damn. <laughs> Don't bring up Ponder's name while I'm in the room. Sorry, but that is how big this show is. There is so much to do that we can't even really do the proper 10-minute introduction that we usually do. So let's get into it and kick it off with Running the Bases with Xavier Player from Hewitt Sports Network. Joining us first up on Running the Bases this morning is Xavier Player from Hewitt Sports Network. Xavier, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. How are you? Very well, my friend. Very well. Now, let's first off and, and let's start to talk about uh, Liam Hendricks, who, of course, uh, is pretty much our only player in the major leagues at the moment. Yeah, he's the only, he's the only consistent in the majors at the moment. Belfort started the year in the majors and uh, was designated for assignment. And Travis Blackley will hopefully be up before the end of the year. But starting with Hendricks, I'm going to start with a bit of a broader statistic to start with. And that's in his last seven games. He's pitched 10.1 innings, only given up two earned runs in his last seven appearances. That's better. And those seven appearances date back to May the 9th. His start before that, he gave up his third last earned run. His appearance before that, sorry, he gave up his third last earned run. So we're starting to see a bit more consistency from uh, Hendricks because at the start of the season, he was kind of wasn't pitching as well as he probably would have hoped, but it seems like he's kind of starting to find some form. He's finding his groove. He's still pitching between the, the one and two inning mark, mostly. His last three appearances, he hasn't conceded to run. The last time he conceded to run, he conceded two against the Houston Astros on May 16, and uh, they've been in fantastic form to start the season. And then, yeah, three games before that without conceding a run, so he's really finding his groove. So is that just because his command is back in order or that he's found another pitch, or what's the, what's the predominant reason for, uh, for the shift in uh, performance? His command does look better than the start of the year. I also think it's a confidence thing. Uh, he's, a, you know, he's making regular appearances in May. He pitched on the second, the ninth, the thirteenth, the fifteenth, the sixteenth, the nineteenth, the twentieth, the twenty-fourth. We go back to April when he only pitched on the tenth, the eleventh, the fourteenth, the seventeenth, the eighteenth, twenty-first, twenty-third, twenty-eighth. We're seeing this month he's had more regular spots. Yeah, and that can only help someone coming out of the bullpen, can't it? Oh, definitely. Because if he knows on what days he's expected to pitch, then he can build his life and his routines around that. And he probably would know what days he's expected to be used. So is that pre-planned? Is it uh, who's going to come out of the bullpen at what stage? It doesn't determine on, on the lineup or anything like that? Look, you're, it obviously varies depending on game situation. But your pitching coach will have a good idea of, okay, on this day I want to use these guys, this guy and this guy. If I can, you know only get away with using two guys. I'll use these two guys. If we have to go to a third guy, this is the guy. I don't want to use my closer today because, you know, we might have six, we might have a six game, you know, we might have six to ten games in a row without a day off or my closer might have been used twice in the last three days or something like that. So, three exact science being a bullpen coach and not something that I envy. No, not at all. Well, let's move on from Liam Hendricks to a couple of guys that you spoke about earlier on. Uh, and, and firstly, with uh, Trav Black, we had a chat to Trav last week, and we pretty much went through his journey about starting off with the Seattle Mariners organization, and now obviously he finds himself uh, with the Marlins. He's still in AAA at the moment. Hopefully he can break through to the majors uh, relatively soon. But uh, how's Trav uh, uh, pitching in the uh, in AAA ball? As you say, he's had a, a very good... Um journey over the years he's been very lucky in the sense that he has worked in a lot of different organizations and he's been given lots of great chances but unfortunately for him at this point he hasn't had the greatest start to the year uh he's only made the one appearance he's playing uh triple a for the miami marlins organization so he's playing at the moment with the new orleans deficit i'd imagine that 
New Orleans as a town who don't have a major league team would be a, be a very interesting place to pitch in the minors. Yeah, right. How so? Oh, I just think that because it's got such a, a professional sports culture, I wonder how much of that translates to the Zephyrs organisation because they do have a good range of professional sport. They've got the Pelicans and they've got the, the Saints who have both had you know, um, varying degrees of success over the year. So it's kind of like in New Mexico, the Lobos, the college basketball team there, are sort of like the, you know a big deal. You know, it's sold out week in, week out because there is no professional sporting team yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, and that's why I think that the vibe around the Zephyrs organization would be very interesting. Anyway, going back to Blackley's one start that he's had, it was against the El Paso Chihuahuas, and unfortunately it wasn't a great start. He only lasted five innings, but in those five innings, nine hits, five runs, three strikeouts and gave up two home runs. That's the team Josh Spence is a bullpen coach for. It is indeed. Very good. Yeah. So well done to Josh Spence. I know baseball. <laughs> well, Josh Spence indeed. Well done. So how cutthroat is uh, the minor league system? If he has you know, one more bad start, is, is that it for him? Or, or how long? No, I, I, how many chances I, will he be getting, do you think? I, I think he's probably got a few chances. I, w- I wouldn't be stressing too much. Obviously, he'd want to improve from where he currently is, but Overall, not a huge concern. What about Grant Balfour? Obviously, he was designated for assignment uh, a month or so ago. How's he going at the moment pitching in minor leagues? Look, when you look at his stats, they're great. He's made eight appearances. He's got an earned run average of 2.79. Pitched 9.2 innings. So going about an inning a start out of the bullpen, he struck out 11 guys, only walked four, and only given up nine hits in eight appearances. So I think he'd be pretty happy as well. Again, just about getting back in a position where he can move forward. Beautiful. Now let's move and shift our attention to the minor leagues uh, and other other guys in the minor leagues. Who's really standing out uh, in your mind? Just uh, one or two guys who are really standing out in your mind. Got two guys to talk about today. The first one's James Beresford. We talked about him about a month ago. Uh, What's impressed me about James is that in his last 10 games, he has hit in all... He has hit in all by two of those games. Beautiful. So 8 out of 10, he's Batting average is up to uh, 333 on the year. On base percentage of 368. So look, I think he's definitely heads in the right direction, and he could be one that comes September when the rosters expand from 25 men to 40 men, could make the jump. Particularly with the Twins likely to be out of playoff contention by that point. So they'll be more, uh, I guess, willing to to try uh, younger guys and, and inexperienced guys and see if they actually have what it takes to to make the uh, major leagues. Yeah, it's what they uh, call in the business, a cup of coffee, because you're not there for very long. <laughs> I like it. Who's the uh, second player you wanted to have a look at? Uh, Sam Street, who we haven't talked about before. No, we haven't. He's a Melbourne-born boy who's in the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates organization playing for the West Virginia Power in the Southern Atlantic League, who are a single-A club. He's R- made 10 appearances this year and is 2-0 and with a 2.4 ERA. This is coming out of the bullpen. Very nice. He's also got three saves from three save opportunities. In that time, he's held opponents to a batting average of 269. He has struck out 25 guys and only walked two guys. So realistically, how far do you think he and, and Beresford as well would be to uh, warranting um, Major League selection? Obviously, you said Beresford might uh, make the, uh, the roster come September time. Is it similar for, for Street? Uh, look, he's, he's only 23, so I think... As long as he can stay healthy and, and keep pitching consistently, I think we'll see him. We'll definitely see him uh, move through the ranks. I guess 
The biggest pitching story in the uh, Pirates organization has been John Holscomb, who's the New Zealander who played in the ABL for a few years. And he, he made the jump last year, and he just he was fantastic when he made the jump. So, look, the, the, the Pirates do like this part of the world. Thanks for that, Xavier. We'll speak to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Continuing on with rounding the bases this morning is Olgan Yulik from pickandroll.com.au. Olgan, you're back in Australia. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be back. Firstly, before we get into anything else, how was the States? Oh, it was it was amazing. It it's such a great experience. I would if any uh, young person is, is wanting to go over, I would suggest that they do that. Did you um, stack on some weight? Oh, I don't think so. I hope not. Oh, excellent. Oh. Very well done on your behalf. But you, you obviously studied this. You're over for what, just over six months or so? I was there since December, so yeah, about five months, yeah. Beautiful. I, I, I'm very jealous of whenever I hear people go over and, and studying in the States. I wanted to do it uh, when I went to, to TAFE. I wanted to do some sort of exchange program, but the course that I did uh, didn't really have anything like that. I didn't have any exchange program, so I was never able to do it, but uh, I'll, I'll, I like to uh, you know hear about the stories and all that sort of stuff, and you sound like you had a whole bunch of fun, and you were still doing a whole lot of work for us as well when you were over there and for pickandroll.com.au as well, so you were still a very, very busy man, and even though it's the off-season, Noggin, there's still a whole bunch of stuff going on. There is. The, the seasons are over, but there's lots of recruiting news coming in, and, and the news never stops. Absolutely. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was Keanu Pinder decommitting. He did. He decommitted from the University of Nebraska. Um, it was... Uh, the the uh, big factor of that play was Chris Harriman, who was uh, instrumental in bringing him to Nebraska. He, he left the school, and uh, Harriman was a friend of Keanu's dad, Tiny Pinder, who played in the NBL. They were teammates in the NBL, and so... Uh, yeah, I spoke with Keanu a few days ago. Uh, he yeah, he said that he wanted to experience the recruiting process again, so he he decommitted. What's the odds that he's going to land at New Mexico? Um, he didn't want to give me a, a definite answer with that, but I'd say that the odds are, are likely. Chris Harriman's at New Mexico now on their coaching staff, and they have a history of Australians and. So I say that it's very likely that he ends up there. It's one of the um, one of the rules in, in um, I suppose, uh, NCAA recruiting that I almost feel is a double standard in that, uh, you know, there's a set of, set of rules for coaches and there's a set of rules for athletes. And the athletes, if they commit to a college, they, they throughout the recruiting process, they're not necessarily committing to a, a university. They're more committing to a coach that's recruited them. And you hear so often about coaches that, you know, after they've recruited a batch of kids, then they get an offer from maybe a pro team or maybe in a better position at another college program, and they're allowed to leave, but the kids don't because they've already signed their letter of intent. So, you know, I, I feel it's um, you know, I, I, I feel you know, for Keanu, uh, Keanu, it's lucky at this point in time that he didn't actually sign a letter of an intent and he can actually go somewhere else. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There's um, the perfect example now is Billy Donovan, who's moved to Oklahoma City, and uh, a lot of top recruits have left Florida just because they, they signed up for the coach. And so that's why a lot of uh, prospects now aren't signing their letter of intent. They're, just, they're committing to the program. Yeah, and that's a common uh, uh, misconception about uh, the recruiting process is that you don't actually have to sign a letter of intent. Um, athletes actually do it so they have a surety that they have their scholarship, but they don't actually have to sign it um, if, if they don't want to, not, not initially at least. But um, Yeah, it's, 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 not a, it's not a great look when you do that. Just people seem, they, they seem to question your intent when you don't sign it, mm. but it is something to, to have in your back pocket just in case something like this does happen. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, where, where would you say would be his options outside of New Mexico if, if he doesn't end up there? Well, he, he hasn't played uh, particularly well at 
the junior college that he's at. He, he hasn't played badly by any means, but he hasn't uh, shown out at all. But um, in high school, he had offers from Auburn, uh, St. Mary's, uh, New Mexico, and Nebraska, of course. So I'd say that they're the top ones. So that's why I'd say New Mexico's up there, just because they've been a part of the recruiting process for a little bit now. So while New Mexico has had a history of uh, a lot of Australians go to that program, also has Montverde Academy and the high school level, obviously, with uh, Ben Simmons playing there. And we've got another Australian who's going to head there soon. We do. Cameron Healy. He's a point guard out of Sydney. Uh, he's a 2017 guy, so he's quite young. Uh, he's been playing on the AAU set in Indiana for the last few weeks, and he got approached by the staff at Montverde, and um, he'll be heading over there to play for their press team. Any, I know Healy's a common name. Any relation to Kai Healy? It's actually Kai Healy's brother. There you go. Perfect relation. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I picked up on that one. Um, so, is there, do you think it's going to become a, given that the uh, sort of boom, or not, I call it a boom, but in reality the numbers probably don't um, show that, but increased interest in Australian basketball talent, what, what do you project the numbers in the future years of Australians going over for high school basketball um, to lead into their college careers as opposed to finishing high school here? I think it'll, the number will definitely increase. When I spoke with Cameron, he told me that a lot of it had to do with the exposure that you get in the United States, which is something that I've witnessed firsthand. Um, along with just the increased competition, there's just more talent, and you play better talent on a, on a more regular basis. And so that's, that's a huge thing for these young guys. And uh, finishing off uh, the interview today, Olgan, we uh, want to touch on uh, Thon Maker. Always, there's always going to be a conjecture about what he's going to do during this offseason, and you've got some news on that? I do. I, I spoke with his guardian recently, and um, the initial thought was that he would graduate sometime this year, and I'm hearing that it, it'll be sometime around December. Um, and so if that's the case, which it likely will be, um, he has the option to either do a postgraduate at Orangeville Prep, that he'll be there until the end of uh, next high school season, or he has the option to join a college mid-year, which is, is an unusual situation, but there are a few colleges that will be willing to, to take someone like Thon at that time. Uh, I, I heard the other day. I think uh, it was a source that uh, was spoke to, um, yeah, Thon's guardian at the same time said uh, Arizona State, and I forget who Kansas and Kentucky. I thought the other two. Uh, no, there was two that got brought up. One, one was Arizona State. The other was Indiana. Might be the other one. Maybe it was yeah. I think maybe it was Indiana. But uh, yep. yeah, have you? How would you? Uh, how would you uh, go with that? Do you think that uh, they're you know likely programs or ones that would uh, fit him? I I, I do. It's- if he, if he does go into the situation where he joins the school in December, so joining them in the middle of the year, then I think some a, a team like Arizona State will take him on just because they, they do have a relationship with the coaching staff there. Um, a team like Indiana, I've heard, is someone that will take him on as well. And even Kentucky, they've had a relatively weak recruiting class this year. Well, Arizona so I think, yeah, they'd be willing to take him on. Arizona State just fired their head coach uh, well, a few months ago, the end of March Madness. Oh, well, they didn't make March Madness, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that... Uh, you know, if they have the same coaching staff or, or, or what they end up doing. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to see him in the Sun Devils. That would be a good lineup. Yeah, like, like, well, like, like you said, it, it comes down to the coaching staff. The kids, kids are more con- uh, committing to the coaches. And so if, there, if there's someone there that, that Don and his guardian have a relationship with already, then that's a huge plus. Absolutely. Olgan, thank you so much for joining us on uh, The Flag Flies once again. Maybe we can read all your stuff at uh, pickandroll.com.au. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Finishing us up on Rounding the Bases this morning is Ben Yamkadane from Believe the Hype. Mate, welcome to the show. As always, thanks for having me, guys. Not a problem, mate. So we'll, we'll firstly start to talk about uh, Matthew Delvadova, who today, or yesterday, in fact, kind of become um, a bit of a villain, uh, at least according to Reggie Miller. 
Well, I mean, that was uh, you know, one of the sides to the story that was getting around, but definitely on the commentary, Reggie Miller had a few uh, choice words for, uh, for Deliver Dover in this game. But uh, it, it was... It was one of those situations where you have a scrappy player that's in there hustling for every loose ball, and um, when you kind of get tangled up like that, it's uh, it's, it's a tricky situation. And uh, that, that's his game. He's always played uh, with that sort of hard nose, get the ball mentality. And it was just one of those collisions that uh, you know is kind of unavoidable in those kind of circumstances. I think that's why everyone, including LeBron, I think loves Delhi. Is that he's not the most athletic guy. He's not going to you know pull out monstrous numbers every night, but he's always going to give a hundred percent. That's what he's done from you know his freshman season at St Mary's to right now. And all of a sudden, people seem to be taken uh, you know taken it the wrong way. But Delavadova is just he can throw his body around and he loves getting dirty. That's all. That's all it is to me. Well, I, I completely agree. I think a lot of the time is you know people may be surprised that he's he's chasing some of these uh, loose balls that you might not necessarily expect a body uh, to come flying down on the floor. But LeBron made that point in the post game press conference that you know there was multiple other occasions during the game, particularly in the fourth quarter, where there was about six or seven bodies on the floor, uh, or you know in very similar situations to that one. It's just that you know that didn't sort of garner the same uh, reactions. So I think that was maybe more a little bit more of a frustration thing. Uh, for Al Horford, who you know, he, he said that even he was getting a couple of uh, knocks you know, in the last couple of games, and obviously with the Kyle Korb injury, uh, and then sort of throwing that in there as well. I think that was more uh, a frustration for Al Horford rather than you know, directly uh, at Bill Vadova. Dude, I, I, I watched it today, and I, I didn't think that there was actually even an elbow in there. I, I just think he just landed on top of him. But uh, did you think it was warranted? Yeah, I, I think maybe a flagrant one probably uh, would have been more appropriate, given that there was a tech foul given... Uh, to Delhi, but uh, the NBA officials, you know, released their statement after the game saying that they didn't look at those two situations together. They treated them as two uh, separate sort of incidents. So that's why, uh, you know, one did sort of come with the other. It was pretty much just looking at what Al Horford did and that reaction, uh, which in that case does uh, warrant a flagrant too. If that's the way that they've looked at it, then I think they they did get it right. But it was a uh, it was I guess you can consider it a little bit harsh. But the way that he came down with the intent above the shoulders, I guess you know within the letter of the law, is uh, is worthy of a flagrant too. The thing that I did like, and um, we have mentioned this on the show previously, that LeBron James seems to you know, really enjoy the way that Matthew Delvedova plays. And I tweeted about this before, that the way the uh, the post-match press conference kind of worked, Delvedova was up there with LeBron, and LeBron kind of, it seemed to be a bit of a big brother, little brother kind of situation there, because I think one of the reporters asked Delvedova what was going on, and LeBron tried to you know step in and, and help him out, and Delvedova was like, no, nah, man, I've got this, I can, I can answer this, no worries. But there was certainly a bit of you know trying to protect Delvedova from LeBron's behalf, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Delhi's only been to the podium, you know, twice in his life, including uh, that game where, you know, LeBron, that's a, that's a nightly routine for him. So I think a lot of it was him trying to protect him. He looked uh, good up there. The question. <laughs> he looked very good up there. Yeah, hey, look, it's getting very, very comfortable and very familiar to have him there in the in the podium in the playoffs. But you're right, I think it was very much a, you know, I've, I've been here a thousand times. I'll sort of you know, have you back in that kind of situation. And so it's, it's nice to see. And, and you can tell that, you know, LeBron... Definitely enjoys having Delver Dover as a teammate, and especially in this situation when the Cavs are so short-handed, they have needed someone uh, to step up. And Delhi has more than answered the call in that regard. I, I find it, yeah, a huge mark of respect that uh, you know King James himself, uh, you know, obviously has uh, has a lot of uh, time and, and respect for Delver Dover as a player. That you'd almost say that uh, Delhi's uh, a lock to stay on the team, given that uh, LeBron must trust him an awful lot. Well, I, I would have said that even before this playoffs. I think you know the organization huge fan of Delhi. Coach Blatt uh, is, is also a big fan of Delvedovas as well. And, and he's the kind of guy that is a great teammate. He works 
insanely hard and, and hasn't always been given the opportunities but has still maintained that same sort of work ethic. And, and those are the kind of things that the guys like LeBron and, and, and David Blatt as well, they see that every day. Uh, and so now we're just only starting to see it. Uh, you know, for everyone else, it's starting to see the rewards of that. But, but those guys see him up close every day and they know the work that has gone into, uh, into his season and, and what he's been able to do in sort of bits and pieces. And now we're starting to see you know what he can do in 40 minutes. What he can do uh, as a as a role player, as a as a starter on this team, and and in in these sort of crunch time situations, he's been really impressive. Yeah, well, 45 minutes today, stepping in for the injured Kyrie Irving, had 17 points. He's he's had a terrific series all around. The Cavs are now three nothing up. Similar situation for the Golden State Warriors, who are three nothing up against Houston Rockets. It's looking like it's going to be a Cleveland Warriors final, which we've been saying for a while, and that'll be terrific from our perspective because it'll essentially be delivered over against Bogut. And either way, we're going to get an Australian take out a championship. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great situation to have you know both of these guys. You know, even just in this position uh, in the conference finals, but you know, at, at three and zero in their respective series, it's it's a tall task for uh, for the Rockets or the Atlanta Hawks to try and come back. Uh, at the moment, so it is looking pretty likely that we will see both these guys squaring off in the in the finals, which is is really cool, you know, for them as individuals, but also just for for Australian basketball in general. Obviously, we've spoken about Delavadova for the first few minutes of this uh, show because of the fact uh, that uh, there was all, all that situation going on with uh, Reggie Miller talk, calling him dirty, all that sort of stuff. But Andrew Bogut's had a terrific series on the other end as well. How have you found his game? Uh, Andrew Bogut's been fantastic. He started off a little bit slow in game one, but has definitely worked his way. Uh, into some great form, and I, and I think he's really enjoying that matchup uh, with the Houston Rockets big man, especially against Dwight Howard, who is such a tough cover uh, and a physical player. But Andrew Bogut really sort of thrives in those situations where he's got a guy, you know, coming at him, you know, for 48 minutes, and and he's been really, really good uh, for the Warriors. But he hasn't almost had to be either because the Warriors have been so so good in in that last game three. He only played 20 minutes. He was in foul trouble early, and and they, you know, they, they were able to sort of you know move on uh, even without him playing that much. So that just sort of shows you how well. The Warriors are playing as a whole. Yeah, how is it not that good, mate? Steph Curry out rebounds him. Well, I mean, when you want the offensive boards, you got <laughs> Steph Curry now. It's six uh, three. That was phenomenal. That uh, I, I was watching the game uh, yesterday, and f- f- to get a six one guy out rebounding Dwight Howard is is just it just shows that a lot of it can just come down to who wants it more. And in the end, Steph Curry just wanted it more. Exactly. There's no situation where Dwight Howard should be out rebounded by Steph Curry, but Steph Curry. He put himself in those positions, and it just shows if you if you take the right position, you get uh, the front spot early. You put your body in there, and, and and you make a real effort. You know you can you can get those easy buckets, and that was something that killed the Houston Rockets. They they turned uh, sorry the, the Golden State Warriors turned 17 of those offensive boards into 30 second chance points. So when you're kind of just getting battered to death like that, and and, and you're getting all these extra possessions, and you're working so much harder on the defensive side of the floor, we saw them suck the life out of the Rockets pretty pretty quickly in this one. Absolutely. Now, obviously, uh, Cavs still have a couple of injury concerns with um, Kyrie Irving out at the moment. When was when's he scheduled to come back? Well, he was shooting around before this game. There was some talk that he might even play uh, you know, today in uh, in game uh, game two in game three. Sorry, but I think they're going to maybe wait and maybe try and bring him back for game four. But you know, at the moment at three zero up, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he maybe you know is uh in uniform but doesn't really play that much and, and they'll maybe see how they go but you know right now three and oh if he can get another game of rest get an extra bit of time especially with the sweep that's looming it wouldn't surprise me if they uh they maybe rest him up before the uh, the finals and we, and, we, and we don't see him again but i think that'll depend on how things sort of play out in the uh in the next couple of days but you, you never know it would be good for him to sort of get a little bit of run in but if he's not healthy there's uh, there's no point risking him Beautiful, mate. We can read all of your uh, work on BelieveTheHypeNBA.com. And what's on the show this week, man? 
Uh, we'll be recapping all of the playoff activity. We'll be back uh, every couple of days and uh, recapping all the all the games. I have another show coming out tonight, so you can download that on iTunes uh, or at believehupnba.com. We'll be talking playoffs and also a few of the coaching changes that could be coming as well later on uh, during the offseason. Thanks, mate. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Chatting to Australians flying the flag in the US of A, this is the Flag Flyers. In 1986, Craig Shipley became the first Australian in 85 years to play in Major League Baseball. Since then, he's gone on to become one of the most powerful Australians in baseball general, becoming the assistant to the general manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks. If there was ever a trailblazer for Australians making their way to the US, Craig was certainly it. He joins us on the line now. Craig, welcome to the Flag Flyers. Right, thanks for having me. Right, it's been almost 30 years since you made your uh, MLB debut. Obviously, a lot has changed since then, and, and many Australians have uh, have made their way over to the majors since then. What was the most difficult thing for you trying what no other Australian had done uh, since all these years since Joe Quinn? Well, when I was a kid, nobody, first of all, nobody thought you could play in the big leagues. Um, it was kind of a distant uh, league that we didn't have much information on, and um, and nobody came to Australia looking for players. So uh, when I was when I was young, it was it was pretty much a pipe dream. And I was fortunate enough to come to the states with the Australian junior team for a couple of years, seventy nine, eighty, well actually three years, eighty and eighty one, and uh, kind of badgered the assistant coach at Alabama long enough that he let me go to school there, and I uh, was fortunate enough to play three years there and then sign with the Dodgers. Uh, you've been described uh, to me by someone much more schooled in baseball because I, I don't profess to, to be a, a major uh, uh, knowledge base on it as one of the founding fathers of, of a baseball in Australia. Did you realise at the time when you went over, um, you know, being that first person in 85 years, did you realise the opportunity to be a trailblazer or was it just, just pure business for you about, you know, trying to make it uh, to the highest level possible? No, I didn't really think about being a trailblazer and I wasn't. At that time, I was just thinking I'd go to college, play in college, come back home, and I really didn't think much past college. Um, like I said uh, a, a, a minute ago, uh, playing in the big leagues was pretty much uh, what all the, of my peers thought was impossible. So uh, once I got over here and I and I uh, saw that I had an opportunity to play professional baseball, and that I was in professional baseball, well, then... I thought, well, if I'm in professional baseball, I have a chance to play in the big leagues and um, you know, put your head down and work hard, and uh, things worked out for me. Obviously, the way that major league organizations operate these days are a lot different to when you first started. Obviously, the international scouting perspective obviously has changed quite a bit in the fact that they do scout international players now. What do you think has changed the most in relation to how Australians specifically are perceived by major league organizations? Um, I don't think much has really changed. It's just the fact that, as you said, uh, teams look all over the world for players now, whereas when I was, they pretty much just outside the United States, they looked in Latin America. They didn't, they didn't look, uh, really, they didn't go to Asia. They, they definitely didn't go to Australia. Um, and they didn't go to Europe and, um, some other smaller countries that they now, uh, look for players. So, I think the biggest thing that's changed is that that uh, every team is looking for players all over the world. I don't think Australians are perceived any differently than they were probably 
25 years ago when teams really started scouting that area. Uh, I think they're a little more knowledgeable of what different parts of the world produce. And, um, you know, Australia, you know, baseball's not a big sport in Australia. So um, the you know, talent, to me, is, is a direct correlation between talent and the amount of players you have playing in any country. So um, given the fact Australia has a small uh, player pool, I think they produce uh, quite a few players given the size of that pool. Uh, you touched on at the start of, of the interview that you played at uh, the University of Alabama. The two Major League Baseball players that we've had on this show previously, uh, last week was Travis Blackley and a, a couple months ago was Josh Spence. Uh, both took different routes to get to the Majors. Josh obviously going through, through Arizona State uh, and Trav just straight into, I think it was the Seattle Mariners. What do you feel, from your perspective, obviously you, you went the college route, is the most beneficial for, for players these days? Do you see a better pathway, or is it more just for an individual to make? Well, I think it's it's individual choice, but I do believe that Australia needs to put much more emphasis on their players going to college as opposed to to professional baseball. Um, It's very tough for a 17, 18-year-old to compete in in pro ball, especially coming from Australia. So um, I think you have to take on a case-by-case basis, but uh, historically, what what uh, what's happened is Australian pitchers have been more successful than position players, and um, I think some of the reason for that is that there's a lot more positions on any club for, for pitchers. Each team has ten, twelve, well, has twelve, possibly thirteen pitchers, so the pitchers all get generally get a chance to pitch. The position players, when they come over, a lot of them aren't as physically mature as the, the kids they have to compete against. They may be a little younger, um, and they may not get the opportunity. And, and this is a game where um, first impressions carry a pretty, you know, they carry a lasting impact. And if you don't get to play this game, especially as a position player, it's very difficult. You can be a pitcher and pitch two or three times a week and still have a chance. But if you're a position player and you're trying to learn how to hit, you're only playing a couple of times a week. It's for me. It's virtually impossible to develop your skill to the utmost of your potential. We're talking to Craig Shipley, assistant to the general manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Craig, not only were you uh, the first Australian, however many years, to play in the major leagues, but you're also the first to hold such a high position in the organization's front office. Was this always the plan when you were playing, or was it more of a thing that when you finished your playing career, you thought? well, I don't really want to step away from the game yet, so I want to go on and, and, and just be involved in the game as much as I can. Um, well, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. When I, I knew I wanted to stay in the game, but I wasn't sure what um, part of the game I wanted to stay in. So <clears throat> my first job was actually, I was the infield coordinator for the Montreal Expos. So, so I oversaw the development of all of the minor league infielders. Uh, I did that for a year, um, and then went back to work for a good friend of mine who's the general manager of the Padres, Kevin Powers. <coughs> and I worked there two years, then I worked, went to Boston to work with Theo Epstein, um, and I worked with Theo the whole time he was in Boston. So, um, no, it wasn't really the plan to go this direction. It just kind of evolved and developed, and... Um, been enjoyable. There's times when I get the desire to go back on the field and teach. 
Um, and maybe one day I'll do that. But uh, as of right now, you know, I'm enjoying working for the Diamondbacks. A good group of people. We've had some change, but um, with the leadership of Tony Russo and Dave Stewart and B. John Watson and our president, Derek Hall, I think we're headed in the right direction. As the uh, assistant to the general manager of the Diamondbacks, what does your uh, role typically involve? Um, pretty much all I do now is evaluate talent. So um, I see four of our minor league teams, and then I see a lot of international players. I see a lot of the Cuban national team. I go to Japan and see uh, the best players in Japan in their major leagues and the MPB. Um, I'll go into Latin America and see young players. Um, I'll see a little bit of Taiwan national team this summer. So it's, it's, my job is now based all the, totally based around evaluation. So we got the draft coming up at the moment. Are you involved heavily in uh, in that process? <laughs> no, the draft is amateur domestic talent. So you're, you're more the international side of things, right? Yeah, I see international talent. I see our minor league system, the players that we already have under contract. Uh, we've uh, we've uh, found out recently that uh, Josh Spence. Uh, uh, a former pitcher in the in the system, as uh, recently uh, a bullpen coach at uh, one of the minor league teams. Uh, how long do you think it is going to be before Australians continue more so in your footsteps from uh, you know into that executive or front office role? Well, it, it depends on the person and the opportunity, and um, you know this this is a tough game to um, to stay in, uh, and so and then then you know a lot of Guys, when they get done playing, they, they want to do something other than baseball. So uh, there's, there's a couple of Australians in the minor leagues coaching, uh, one in San Diego, Michael Collins, and managing one of their low-level teams. And uh, Andrew Graham, also, he works for the Tigers. He manages, I think, their West Michigan club. So um, there's a few guys, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough life, the minor leagues, and be it coaching or scouting and so, uh, you know, it comes down to individual preference as to whether they want to keep doing that after they've done it for a long time as a player or they want to do something else in life. One more question before we let you go and let you get back to bed, Craig. Obviously, uh, along with being involved with the Arizona Diamondbacks, you're also involved as a board member with Baseball Australia. I'm sure you have a tremendous passion to help baseball in Australia. What do you think is the key to improving the game in our country? Well, there's a lot of keys, and I'm, I'm, as of now, I'm not on the board. I resigned from the board a couple of months ago. It was just too difficult for me to be able to do the things that I, I thought I needed to do from the distance, you know, this distance. I'm on the other side of the world. But, um, but I think, you know, I am passionate about Australian baseball. I think there's a lot of things that need to be done. Um, they fight an uphill battle in so many areas, including finances. Uh, you know, the battle not only for finances, but for talent, which I mentioned earlier, is in Australia. There's probably more competition for talent in Australia than there is in any country in the world. So <clears throat> those two things are huge. Um, and the, the, the ABL, I think, helps and should help with the, with the profile of the game. Um, but... Uh, I think one of the biggest initiatives they need to implement is one that attracts young kids to the game, makes the kid, makes the game attractive, makes it affordable, and um, and having visibility through the ABL is one thing that helps that.
Beautiful. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the Flag Flies today. We hope you uh, can rest up and get better soon, and best of luck for the rest of the season. Hopefully we can see the uh, Diamondbacks in uh, the playoffs come the end of the season. All right, guys. Sorry for the voice, but I'll be over this cold soon. <laughs> Not a problem, mate. We'll speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Chatting to Australians flying the flag in the US of A, this is the Flag Flyers. Eddie Hatt Stadium has announced that Melbourne could host a college football ball game as early as next year with the Pac-12 and Mountain West conferences showing interest in the event. It would be a first for Australia who have been waiting for an announcement like this for years. Eddie Hatt Stadium CEO Paul Sargent joins us on the line now. Paul, congratulations on the announcement, mate. Thanks, James. We're, uh, we're, we're stoked. We think it could be a, uh, a fantastic event and a real coup for, uh, for Melbourne, Australia and certainly for Eddie Hatt Stadium. So where did the initial interest in bringing the game to Australia actually come from? Look, I've been uh, looking for content, I always do, uh, in running a venue. And uh, a colleague of mine who put on the uh, one of the first uh, regular season games, college football games, uh, up in Dublin, in uh, in Ireland, at the Viva Stadium, there, massive success, uh, 50-odd thousand sellouts, 33,000 people travelled from the state to that game for Notre Dame against Navy um, in September 2012. So I started to look at it then. And um, it really started to pick up some some momentum about what a year and a half, two years ago, um, to to get to where we where we've got to now. Yeah, that was the uh, was that yeah the Croke Park date. The UCF have been there in recent years, and Penn so, State, I think, as well. Yeah, Penn State yep. been there recently. So, yeah. is that the model that you've you've based this idea off? Well, not dissimilar. You see, the first game was Notre Dame Navy. Uh, as my uh, my partners in the US tell me, that was freakish to get thirty three thousand. Tr- uh, traveling Americans to Dublin was uh, was incredible for Notre Dame, because there's the link, the uh, the Irish Catholic link there, the Irish link between Notre Dame and, uh, and Ireland. Uh, then last year was uh, yeah UCF and Penn State, about fifty again, about fifty five thousand at Croke Park. And so, but for us, we were looking at a regular season game. But um, given our contractual commitments with the AFL, and we've got um, obviously the, uh, the in August, early September, we've got the real pointy end of the AFL season. Um, it was probably a bit too difficult for us to put on. Uh, but then the opportunity of a bowl game came around, and that's when re- things really got exciting. You've said that uh, you think that any games that are brought here would be a sellout. Uh, one, I agree with that. H- how have you been able to gauge the popularity of the sport in Australia, and, and specifically Melbourne? Oh, I read a metric probably oh, two months ago that I think the NFL put out that said they reckon that there's 22 million Australians that are fans of American football. Yeah, then that would not surprise me. Uh, look, we've done, done a little bit of our homework in terms of other sports, other American sports that have come out to, uh, to our shores. Baseball was incredibly successful up in, um, up in Sydney about a year, year and a half ago. Um, ice hockey has been out now two or three times, the USA versus Canada, uh, and sold out. Um, and given, bear in mind, this is a, a genuine uh, bowl game. Um, we have no uh, we have no qualms that it would uh, really uh, be a strong sort of hottest ticket in town. I've been saying. How much do you think that the recent influx of Australian actually playing uh, college football, specifically uh, the punters? How much do you think that uh, bears uh, you know um, that, that has helped the cause, help bring the game to Australia? Yeah, look, it, it has a uh, it has a big influence. Uh, it certainly helps spread the message uh, about the particular sport. You know, Australians playing so well and doing so well in in many different college sports, especially. Um, in college football, I can't think of his name now, but he was a punter for um, for um, the winning team in the NCAA finals in January. Cam Johnston, yeah, yeah, I was there. Um, so we went over. We uh, we were met, meeting with the guys over in Dallas back in uh, in January, uh, and that was just huge. I mean, the event itself was 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 enormous. 
and uh, with Cam Johnson in that uh, in that game, he will remember that for the rest of his life and spread that uh, spread the word, no doubt, back here in Australia. Well, Paul, uh, it's, your timing's impeccable with uh, the announcement in the last couple of days because it just so happens uh, that uh, most of those Pro Kick Australian boys are actually back in the country at the moment. And uh, if you ever want a photo opportunity uh, of publicising the game, Cam Johnston's here. Tom uh, Hackett. Tom Hackett is here, who's the Ray Guy Award winner. You've got guys from Penn State. Uh, you guys Oregon State. They're all here. So you should get on to Nathan Chapman and John Smith at Pro Kick and, uh, and tee something up, I reckon. I think that's a very good idea. I'll, uh, I'll be following you up on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're, they're keen. I actually had a phone call from John Smith just before saying, uh, "Get Paul Sargent's uh, phone number for me." So uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you're receptive on that side of it because uh, yeah, uh, Jamie Keane from LSU is out here as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's some pretty yeah. uh, mar- marketable names in terms of college football programs. But um, has there been anything finalised in terms of what seed in each conference is going to come out? I've heard fifth from the Pac-12 and fifth from the Mountain West? Um, look, we have to, uh, to realise where we, where we fit in the pecking order. Uh, you, you were the new kids on the block. Um, certainly um, both, the, um, both conferences uh, would want to give us a pretty good shot, but they can't guarantee anything, that's, um, that's, that's for sure. Um, so we just have to realise, it's very complicated and complex. We've, we've come to understand that over the last year, year and a half. Uh, how complex and complicated it is. And, of course, they've got their own bowl deal to uh, take into consideration as well. So I think for us, we look how strong Pac-12 are. Mountain West aren't far off. I, I think we'd be happy with it, with any of those picks, to be honest. What name can we give to the bowl, do you reckon? Outback Bowl would be the obvious one, but there's already an Outback Bowl. So we, we've got to try to figure out a, a name for the bowl to, to bring down here. Well, we've been pretty coy on that at the moment because, um, obviously, we don't want to go out with a name that's going to harm any uh, eventual title. Um, of the uh, of the game, um, so at the moment we're just calling it the US College Football Game. <laughs> Perfect. How <laughs> does that? Yeah, oh, mate, mate, there's a work in progress. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll say that. That's the kind way to say. It. But yeah. uh, do you have a team yourself that you that you, that you follow, or you have some affinity towards? Well, I, I used to uh, for years follow the Raiders in the NFL. Uh, I, I did many in the NFL game in my days of running Wembley. Oh, very good. Yeah. So I, uh, I did the first game I did was the uh, the Bears against the Rams with William Perry playing for the Bears. Oh, fa- and Jim McMahon and the like. So that goes back to nineteen eighty, about eighty seven or eighty eight. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Oh, that was going to sort of lead on to my next question was that uh, uh, a lot of people in Australia have been, uh, you know, um, quite passionate for a while to bring an NFL game out to Australia where. From my perspective, the logical stepping stone would be, okay, let's get a college game out here, first of all. Is yep. this part of maybe a bit of a longer-term vision to say, all right, we can prove the market with a college game. Now give us the big the big event. Yeah, look, I think it would be tough. I think it would be difficult to get an NFL game out into, uh, out into Australia, uh, not because we don't have uh, wonderful facilities and all that goes with it, and can we put a game on? Of course we can. Uh, but in terms of the marketplace, uh, in terms of the marketplace, and we've got 23 million people in in, um, in Australia. You know, they're putting games on in the UK at the moment where there's 60 million and what, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people within one hour, one and a half hour flight. So uh, in terms of looking at how they grow the brand, you know, we're, we're quite small in the overall scheme of things. I think it might be a bit of a challenge for an NFL. Yeah, fair enough. Now, how much are you actually attempting to recreate the uh, the match day experiences of bowl games? Because we see when we watch it on ESPN or wherever we watch it, you can see that the atmosphere at the games are just phenomenal, and the way that they put on the games are just second to none. So, are we trying to recreate something similar to to what we see over in the states? 
Yeah, look, it's, that's, uh, it's front and center that we've got to put on a, a product and bring together a product which is authentic. Um, the game's competitive, uh, but the event itself, it's a fully authentic college bowl game with uh, with marching bands, cheerleaders, and all the razzmatazz that goes with a bowl game, and uh, that's, uh, that's certainly our intention and our aim. What about tailgating? There's not really to really tailgate at Renetti Head Stadium. We've got to try to figure out a place somewhere to put it. <laughs> but we've got a tremendous waterfront out there, haven't we? Perfect. We can do something there. We can work out something or other. Just chuck some uh, barbecues up there and then get everyone coming yeah. down there, I reckon. Well, that's, that's certainly going to be in our thinking to make the... Uh, we've got a wonderful waterfront uh, that's adjacent to the stadium. Uh, and what a fantastic setting that would be uh, to, uh, to have some kind of barbecue or tailgating area around there. I think it would be fantastic. Has there been any, I suppose, um, coordination with governing bodies in, I suppose, uh, the US or, or the Australian equivalent to, you know, they like the idea of expanding this out to Australia, or was this more led from, from your end at Etihad? Yeah, look, we certainly led the, uh, certainly led the charge, uh, but we are talking to, uh, to the conferences, uh, and there is a bowl committee for the uh, NCAA, so... Uh, yeah, all the uh, all the all the key players are people that we have to talk to, and we are doing. Beautiful, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on the Flag Flies, mate. We wish you the best of luck, and hopefully that we can get as many games down here as possible. I think the the talk at the moment is uh, hopefully from next year on the next four after that. So hopefully we can get as much as we can down here because we love it. And we know a lot of people out there love it. So best of luck with everything, and we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. Terrific. Thanks, Jens. Thanks for your time. That brings us to the end of probably the busiest show that we've had since we started this show, Lockie. It has been a tremendous show. If you did miss it and you want to catch it on the internet, it's at sen.com.au. You can also uh, find it on iTunes. If you just search for The Flag Flies, you can find it there. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Flag Flies and on Twitter at The Flag Flies. Lockie, this is your last show for a few weeks because you're going to the States, my friend. You lucky, lucky person, you. But there's no time to talk about because we need to get off the air. So bye, everyone.